Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White. And I'm Dr. Mika Petucci. And, and this, this is, is The Science of Motherhood. Of Hello and welcome to episode 34 of the Science of Motherhood podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Renee White, and I am one half of the dynamic duo from Fill Your Cup. We are postpartum doulas here in Melbourne and Hobart, Australia, which is down the south of Australia for all those across the world. And we have got some really exciting news. We are going to be launching our first Fill Your Cup products at the end of July. And we have a special pre-order discount for all of our listeners and our Fill Your Cup village. Our products are going to contain our signature chalk goji lactation cooking mix. It is also going to have our creamy coconut dal mix, which is a first in market to contain organic chicken bone broth already in the mix. So it's going to be something where you can just rip the packet open, pour it into a saucepan, add some coconut uh, cream and some water and stir it all together In half a time of a catnap, you are going to have a beautifully nourishing meal available to you, mummers. And after you have consumed all the cookies and dal that your body can take, you can slip into a warm bath and add our 100% organic postpartum recovery sits which is going to be a beautiful, beautiful product for our mamas to have. It contains magnesium chloride salts, witch hazel leaf, yarrow, lavender, calendula, chamomile, comfrey, and marshmallow root. And together they are going to help ease inflammation and soothe that sensitive JJ of yours post-birth. So we're really excited to bring all three of those products to you. They go on pre-order on the 27th of July. But if you sign up on our website, which is ifillyourcup.com, and you see the little pop-up box that um, asks for your email, you can get our exclusive pre-order discount for those products when they go live. So we're so, so excited. This is the first time that we've launched these and we cannot wait to bring these beautiful, nourishing products to you at home. So with that said... Let's talk about who we have got on the podcast today. 
Dr. Bryony Hill. So she is currently at Monash University here in Australia, and she's an expert on behavior change with a focus on lifestyle health and its link with psychosocial well-being in mothers before, during, and after pregnancy. She's also a mum of three, a nine-year-old, five-year-old, and 13-month-old. So she absolutely has her hands full. And we talk about I guess the juggle and the balance and and having a career and being a mother as well in, in this podcast. Bryony completed her PhD in health psychology in 2015 at Deakin University, where she was exploring a psychosocial and behavior change approach to preventing excessive gestational weight gain. And so we talk about this extensively during the podcast and more interestingly, how this applies I guess as as a society and what we what we talk about is the ecological systems theory lens which we will deep dive into in the podcast. So throughout the episode we talk about Bryony as a researcher, Bryony as a mother and how or if any of those skills have been transferred across from one role to another, spoiler alert, absolutely have. Um, And then we deep dive into the science around Bryony's work and what her team is currently working on and some myths and misconceptions that she has found during her research. Oh man, I found this to be such an interesting discussion with Bryony because it's not just about, I guess, you know, that primary level of science. She's taking it to that broader spectrum where she's looking at the basic levels, but then translating that into how we as, you know, human beings work in society. It's a very, very complex network and you have so many different factors and influences on how people perceive and also carry out their lives in terms of a healthy lifestyle or weight gain or exercise and and things like that. So I think this is a little bit I would say left of centre for us this interview, but also I think it's going to be extremely valuable because we do need to look at things from a bigger picture. So we've gone very macro on this interview instead of, I guess, maybe more the nitty gritty that we typically talk about when we deep dive into a particular topic like a gestational diabetes topic or a postpartum nutrition topic. So I learned a lot. I thought this was really, really valuable. And I hope you all enjoy this interview with Dr. Bryony Hill. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Dr. Bryony Hill, how are you today? Great. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you. For all those playing at home, Bryony actually reached out to me because she is a good friend of our I'm going to say resident nutritionist, Dr. Stephanie Perotta, (laughs) who's been on the podcast two, two, three times or something like that. Maybe three times. Yes. She is a very valued kind of uh, member of the FYC village and she's a Malteser just like me. So that's why I think we keep her on the books. (laughs) Now, Bryony, you are here because obviously you're a researcher and we love that. 
And I was just saying offline how I was reading through your bio and you have got some amazing, amazing achievements. I'm just going to read out because this is what really, I was like, whoa, we need to have this girl on the podcast. Not only are you a mother of three, three girls, is it? Three boys. Three boys. Yes. Wowzers. Okay, we're going to get to that in a second, girlfriend. (laughs) People would have heard from the introduction. So you are an expert in kind of maternal well-being across the spectrum. So preconception, during pregnancy and postpartum, which I love. I love that kind of holistic perspective. You're not just like pigeonholing people. But this is what I really love and this is where I was like, yes, she definitely needs to come onto the podcast. You've got here in your bio, she also applies an ecological systems theory lens and we'll translate that for all the listeners at home in a second to her research to recognise the broader impacts on weight management and lifestyle health that extend through the community, society and government As part of this work, Brani is one of only a small handful of researchers globally pursuing research to understand how we can minimise weight stigma at all levels to reduce the burden and blame on women across the reproductive life phase. And she is the first researcher globally to begin exploring this topic in preconception in women. Big round of applause to you because we... We always bang on about the fact that there is not enough research in women's health and you are just at the coalface, girlfriend. You were just taking it all. I love that. Can you talk to us about that? What is an ecological systems theory lens? We're just going to dive straight straight in on that one. Big big topics. I mean, it sounds really fancy, but it's not. It took, it's, so ecological systems theory is about understanding the, socio-ecological so the society and environmental factors that impact our well-being so if you think about government and policy and how that can impact so for example we have the national women's health strategy we have the national obesity strategy we have guidelines for antenatal care for care of women during pregnancy And then we have the environment we live in, people's attitudes to our health and well-being. We have um, our workplaces and the workplace environment, the laws and regulations around well-being during work. We have our our schools. We have our family members. We have the other mothers that we interact with on a daily basis. We have our families. So all of these things form the ecological system. they all impact our well-being. It's, you know, it's not just we're responsible for our own health, which, of course, is, is part of it, but our health is impacted by all these things that are around us every day. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's so true because it's not just one problem, you know. It's not just your problem. It's not just the government's problem. It's not just the policy's problem. It's everyone's kind of problem. And so... Is your research looking at each one of those kind of factors? And do you have, I guess, ties in with government and community and things like that? How are you, how is your research being translated to kind of, you know, trickle into those policies and procedures and things like that? Yeah, that's a great question. So we do try and address all the different levels of this ecological systems theory model. 
But each, you know, each layer requires a different approach and it requires different connections. And so we, I say we because I work in a team, it's not just me. So we are trying to address all those different levels. So for example, I am doing some work with workplaces to -hmm. try and improve uh, women's well-being across the preconception or pregnancy planning phase during pregnancy and then postpartum and then transition back to work. Mm -hmm. So that's one level of the model. I'm also doing some work to try and improve the way weight stigma is portrayed in policies. So we're trying to influence policy. So we want to reduce the stigmatisation of women living in larger bodies across that preconception pregnancy and postpartum phase. And so one of the the projects that we're working on is to reduce the the negative impact that policies can have and try and um, make them less stigmatising. And that could include things uh, throughout the ecological system. So that might um, include changing the format or layout or environment of an antenatal clinic mm-hmm. or maternity ward. It could include changing the guidelines for care of women during pregnancy. It could be changing the wording in the policy for the National Women's Health Strategy so that it's less stigmatising. And so that's just a few examples of some of the work that we are currently working on. Mm, that's really, really interesting because I, and we're going to go back you know, to kind of grassroots around what what is the research that you're currently doing? You know, as you said, it's part of a team for all those playing at home. Anyone who thinks that they can do science alone, <laughs> good luck to you. <laughs> you know, it's always part of a team. I would love to explore this, you know, weight stigma kind of phenomenon because we were talking with Renee Jennings, who is a nutritionist and dietitian in the previous episode, She's from Nurture the Seed and we were talking about, you know, gestational diabetes and BMI and and things like that. And I've seen it, you know, with friends and family who are told, you know, your BMI is X and therefore you've been put into this other category where you've got to do all these additional tests and monitoring and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, a lot of women, particularly those who are first-time mummers, they're just, yep, 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 not a problem. They don't realise that they can say no at all and sometimes, you know, those things are probably unnecessary. Can you walk us through, particularly, you know, during that pregnancy phase and that weight stigma that's going into it, what is your research working on and and how can we kind of action some things today with with our listeners? Yeah, it's the more you talk about it, the more you realise it's pervasive in society. Nearly every person you speak to has a story about being stigmatised in society and, and often in their antenatal care. Women experience multiple stigmatising experiences throughout their pregnancy, particularly if they're a woman who lives in a, a larger sized body, but doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily limited to that because stigma, uh, weight stigma can be internalised. It can be your experience of it regardless of what your body size is. So we are actively trying to understand that further. The research tell, the research corroborates those anecdotes. So 
for example, a paper that I read uh, had a story about women who were wanting to plan for a pregnancy and wanted to start trying. And the care they received from their clinician was the clinician refused to remove their long-acting contraceptive device because they said that they their BMI was too large to have a baby. And so wow. this is an example of how the medical care can blame people for their body size. It's, it's you know, fat shaming is a word that's thrown around a little bit. I don't particularly like the term. But it just places that blame on mothers. It's your fault if something happens because of your body size. It, it's it's you, your fault because you ate the wrong foods. It's your fault because you have done the wrong thing, which is not true at all. It's not the woman's fault, you know. It's the, the health professional's fault for being, you know, I won't say the word that I'm thinking of, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, you know, anecdotally and the research, they both say the same thing. So we are working on ways to change that. So we are, um, we've just, we're putting together a proposal at the moment to try and educate health professionals to change their behaviour so that it's less stigmatising, less discriminating, less shaming of women. So what might people do now? There's heaps of resources. If you just look up weight stigma online, there's, I think the West, Western Australian government has some great resources in just changing your language, just Instead of saying you have obesity, you're obese, you know, just be much more respectful in how you talk to people about their their weight or their body size. Mm-hmm. And everyone has a different preference, so there's no perfect answer of what you should say. But the best thing is to ask, you know, mm-hmm. ask the woman. They're not just a number. They're not just a person, you know, in your list of 100 people that you have to see and you've got to tick them all off. But, you know, they're a real individual with real needs and, and real feelings. Um, so that's a really simple thing that everybody can do. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think both Renee and I made the comment in the last episode that, you know, people who have a higher BMI, they know that, you know, like you don't have to throw it in their face. They understand that they're, you know, at that end of the spectrum and you don't have to, like similar to... Um, you know, it's like dangling a carrot, you know, that whole, I'm not going to take out that long-term contraception. Oh no, you can't have a child until you lose weight. You know, that's, that's not their choice. That's not their choice at all. Yeah, that's right. Oh my goodness. That's really quite a sad story. Okay. So let's talk about, let's talk about Bryony as a mum, because I, I'm always very keen to understand this when I speak with researchers who are also parents in the sense that, you know, that whole chicken and the egg concept. Were you working in this field before you were a mother? Well, it's a bit of a funny story. (laughs) So I was doing a PhD. um, So I've always been interested in pregnancy and, um, you know, being healthy, healthy weight, lifestyle and and I was doing my PhD looking at weight gain in pregnancy mm-hmm. with a focus on lifestyle behaviours and body image mm-hmm. um, and how we can improve women's behaviours. And I decided with some, I don't know, it might have been a silly idea in hindsight that I wanted to have a baby. <laughs> so I had my first child in the middle of doing a PhD, which if anyone is considering that, please don't. <laughs> So, what a good idea. Were you trying to test your own theories 
Well, lived experience is a really important part of research. Yeah, it is. It is. That's a serious thing that lived experience is really important in, in your research. So I just decided to be the lived experience person in my research. So I had my first baby. I finished my PhD. And of course, I've kept working in the field and now I have three. Wow. And so what did you learn? Like as you were writing your PhD, you obviously would have come across, you know, particular things around gaining weight during pregnancy. What were the things that you learned and did you implement them yourself? I found it made it so much easier to relate to the participants that I was working with in my research. Um, So I could understand, you know, gave context to the answers on a survey Mm -hmm. because surveys are just a piece of paper or it's online now. But, you know, when you when you you haven't experienced it, you don't really get the con. Oh, I can't think of the word. I'm the context. Yeah, <laughs> you don't really get the context around around the responses, and so it really enabled me to understand their responses. But also, you know, I could just have a chat to them, and and we built up a great rapport, and it was it was really great for just you know the whole robustness of my yeah. research. Yeah. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. So okay, so you you handed in and then did you give birth? I no, always no. so I had I he was actually six weeks premature. Okay. So it was one of those sort of stories where you, you go to work and then the next day you you have a baby. Um so okay. that was a bit of a rush handover. But yeah, I had him in the middle of my PhD, had a, a bit of leave and yeah. then came back and finished it off with a baby. Wow, that's a big achievement, a very big achievement. Okay, and so have you found that, you know, being a scientist and a mum, like if there's a transfer of kind of skills in each of those roles? Oh, yeah, of course. Time management. Yeah. (laughs) I don't have a lot of time because kids... You know, kids monopolize your time. Yeah. And so when I'm at work, I'm at work. Yeah. And I, you know, I get things done quickly and I don't muck around. So I suppose that's the most obvious one. But you know, multitasking and being understanding the importance of being there for people. So, you know, when I'm working with my students, I have a few PhD students, and I, I make a point to ask them about their day, ask them how their families are. Um, mm. you know because they have a life too they're not just a researcher they're a person too yeah. and I like to think of myself as a whole person so I'm not just a researcher at work and a mum at home but I'm just me all the time and so I try and bring that philosophy you know to work when I'm when I'm working with others so that hopefully they feel supported in any way that they need to mm. yeah I love that we have a weekly newsletter um, that we send out to our subscribers. And for all those playing at home, if you want to sign up to that, just go onto our website and um, send us a message to join join the village in our Contact Us form. But I spoke about last week how I don't believe in work-life balance. I don't think it exists. <laughs> I think it is this myth that occurs that we are fed as women, particularly, you know, professional women who are trying to juggle it all and what is your thought on it I tend to agree with you it's, yeah <laughs> it's, it's like a holy grail that you can never quite achieve yes the holy grail that you could never achieve I agree I agree because I I just have this I think 
particularly in science as well, we were kind of fed this, you know, women in science and we're going to support you and get your funding and then, you know, have your babies and we'll still be here. And I'm like, will you? (laughs) Will you still be here? And I think at the time there was only, well, only one institute that I knew of, which was the Walter Eliza Institute, where you, if you went on maternity leave, I think they paid for a research assistant to continue your work while you were on mat leave. Yeah, I was like, wow. And that's why a lot of women wanted to work for them because they were like, well, I can run my lab and it's okay if I go and have a family because, you know, I'll be looked after. And they had fantastic salaries as well. Yeah, I just want to, I always like to talk to, you know, women in science in particular around how they, how they, it's not a balance. It's a jigsaw. It's a seesaw to me. It's never completely horizontal. You are always you're always suffering <laughs> in one area. I think. How do you find the juggle? It's a challenge. Um, so I came back from my latest maternity leave in January um, mm-hmm. at point eight, so four days a week. Yeah. But I feel like perhaps my workload hasn't decreased. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> And that's probably my fault, actually. But, yeah, it's It's a juggle. It's just a constant juggle. And some weeks is just work overload and, and then I try and find a week where I can have a breather and focus on my family. And yeah, I, I very much try and when I'm home with the kids, I'm home with the kids. Yeah. So even though my brain might be thinking about a grant or a paper or something, I don't open my laptop until they're in bed and that's just a rule I made for myself just to to try and you know give them what they need because they're my family and they are the most important thing in my life you know I love my job and it's it's important but family is more important yeah exactly I've I kind of I'm similar in that regard I was trying to like you know text people and da 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 while my daughter's here and like I'm definitely the primary caregiver in our family but I've I've actioned a very similar thing to you like when I'm with her, I'm with her, the computer's closed, the phone's in another room, you know, I can't be communicating with other people because when you have to be on, you're on because otherwise you're not on with anyone, like you're not devoting 100% to anyone. That's right. Okay, and do you, what was your postpartum like with your four boys? Was it, was it different? Oh, they were all different. Yeah, so three, the three boys, they were all premature not very not very very early so 34 weeks for the first so that was the shock because I hadn't you know wasn't expecting it he was in special care that was a real very big challenge and you know trying to establish breastfeeding for the first time and I don't have it I didn't have a big village Mm -hmm. at the time and so I really struggled and then you know that pressure of I've got to finish my PhD and so then, you know, the second time I went, okay, I know it was really hard. I'm going to try and do this differently, do that differently. Took longer, you know, took a longer break. And then I just remember walking him in the pram, please go to sleep. I wish I was at work right now, you know. Yeah. And then the third time was in COVID. You know, we were, we were stuck at home and we enacted the mental health wellbeing rule. Yeah. Uh, that's what I call it. I made that name up. But so I was in Melbourne. We were in lockdown. But I knew that for my own mental well-being, I needed to stay connected to my friends yep. while my husband was at work. And so, you know, lots of phone calls, lots of text messages. And if I really needed it, we just, 
you know, you enact that support network. Yep. And um, remote learning was happening at the same time. That was a fun way of spending my mat leave. Um, <laughs> but, you know, three different experiences. Yeah. And I think I just learnt each time to recognise better what I needed. Yeah. And that when I stumbled across your business, your I Feel Your Cup, it just resonates because it's a village. You need a village. And exactly. the first time I didn't have the village and the second time I created a bit more of a village and the third time I was really proactive mm-hmm. in making sure that I had my village. Yeah. And I just found the ex- experience so much better. And what was it about that village that kind of was the game changer for you? Was it that consistent communication? And and if you don't mind me asking, who were you, were there key people in that village that you were like, oh, man, I really leaned on that person because, like, what was their kind of, you know, what was their skill set, like, yeah. that they were bringing to the table? Yeah, so for me it was around the emotional and social connection like physically a third time around you know okay I I can manage to cook and get my kids to bed and you know you just kind of just get used to juggling that whereas the first time that's really hard Mm. but third time yeah it was around that emotional and social connection and being in lockdown for the majority of it and we had that five kilometer we had a five kilometer radius yeah so I really relied on the people that lived nearby Mm -hmm. and that was that was a village that I built just through childcare, through school, just knowing people. Um, you know, I, I make friends quite easily, so that was, you know, not a problem for me. But I really, I really relied on people that I could just, you know, oh, didn't get any sleep last night. How, how was your night, you know? Yeah. And just that kind of knowing you're not alone. And, and my favourite thing is when people bring you food. <laughs> oh! <laughs> Isn't it the best? It's the best thing ever. I think people really underestimate that. One of the slogans that we have is she doesn't need another onesie. You know, she really doesn't. She's She's got all the onesies. Bring her a meal. It's kind of like, you know, and it's, it's actually one of the reasons why we're doing our new um, Fill Your Cup products because we've got our lactation cookies and we're bringing out a dal mix and things like that because food to me is one of the most important things a mama could have because if you're tired a really quick wholesome meal is a game changer when you are tired and you're time poor and for those people who don't have a village like you, Bryony, like, did you call on people? Did you act? That's what I want to know. Did you actively ask people for a meal or did people just kind of volunteer? I don't think I actively asked, but when people said, um, I'd like to bring you food, I said, yes. Okay, when they said, oh, I, do, I said, yes. First time I didn't do that. I was like, I'm an independent woman. I can do it myself. Oh, yeah. And then I realised that, okay, I can do it myself, but I don't have to do it myself. And so I... I yeah, I said yes. I said yes to all the things. I love that. Yes to all the things. And I, I think that's a really good point that you make also. I can do it myself, but I don't have to. You know, of course you can do it yourself. Of course we can all do this. We can all raise children by ourselves, but do we want to? Not really. Like it's lonely and like you've got, as you say, you've got no one 
to kind of call and be like, oh, my God, last night was horrendous. You don't necessarily want them to fix the problem. You just want someone to listen and you want to be heard, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad we went down that rabbit hole (laughs) with you. And I know, like, we're here to talk about your research, but I'm, I'm always so keen to learn about the human behind the research because I find that... I, I definitely found in my research and all the kind of, you know, this is my third career, that who we are as a mother informs what we do in our work. And so understanding who you are as a mum, I think I would, I would anticipate informs what you do in research as well. It really does. But also vice versa, I think. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I, you know, we say things as a researcher, we, we look at the data and we, and we say things, but really we're not talking about numbers. We're talking about people. Mm-hmm. And the more that I, I reflect on the people behind the research, as in the, the people that are giving us their time and their information, you know, that's a, that's a, um, a generous gift from them. And the more, you know, I reflect on what they're giving, the more I can take that on board myself and I think it's made me a better mom and a better person Mm. oh I love that that's yeah that's kind of really special okay so we're going to deep dive into kind of you know this preconception health because we talk a lot about pregnancy and postpartum nutrition but what's going on in preconception health can you talk about the projects that you've got the projects that you've kind of had and the research has been done and some of the findings that you've you've got and then how is that informing the projects that you've currently got going? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the key projects in preconception, I suppose we would call it a program of research, which is just a fancy term for a lot of projects that fit together to make sense. <laughs> Love um, that. <laughs> so I'm, I've always been really interested in understanding people's the why their motivations for doing things so my research focuses around behavior change Mm -hmm. um so I think I talked about earlier about this socio the social ecological model and so right in the middle of that model is a person and so even though everything around us impacts us there is still part of us that you know is responsible for our behavior or not even responsible it's just our behavior it's what we do and so I'm really interested in understanding why people, you know, do what they do. And so in the, in the context of healthy lifestyle, you know, everybody knows, and I'm not, I'm not breaking the boundaries here when I say everybody knows that they should eat lots of vegetables and lots of fruit and not too much sugar and that they should go for walks and be physically active and do exercise. Every single person in the world knows that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's hard. We, we you know, only 50% of, of women of reproductive age in Australia meet the recommendations for physical activity. Only 50% of women of reproductive age in Australia meet the recommendations for fruit and vegetable intake. And indeed, only 10% meet the vegetable intake guidelines. And I'll put my hand up as I'm one of those people because it's really hard. And I know, I know what I should be eating and I know I should, should be doing and so do you. But there's so many other things going on in the world. So in preconception, the first barrier is people don't really understand the concept of preconception health as something they should be doing. 
Mm-hmm. When you're pregnant, you make an appointment and you go to the GP and you, you book into the antenatal clinic or the obstetrician or whatever you're doing and you have, you know, care. In preconception, there's actually pathway that you can take for preconception care, but it's not widely known. And so about 10%, was more like 9% of women of reproductive age are actively planning a pregnancy mm-hmm. um, at any one time. Wow. But most of them do not actively seek out preconception care. And the funny thing is, anecdotally, you might say, well, women who are planning a pregnancy, they are more likely to eat healthily and they're more likely to, you know, be physically active. But actually the research says the opposite. Wow, really? Yeah, I know, and it really surprised me. But it kind of makes sense because of how hard it is to improve your behaviours. So people who are planning pregnancy are essentially the same as everybody else. <laughs> in terms of, you know, it's not really interesting science because trying to report that, um, no one really cares. But, you know, they're not changing their behaviours. They're not suddenly eating five sets of vegetables a day and, you know, suddenly running three times a week and, and going for walks on the other days. They're actually just doing their lives the same as everybody else. And so the first challenge is understanding who are who's planning a pregnancy and how can we engage them in mm. preconception care. And the second thing is if you're not planning a pregnancy, you know, up to 50% of pregnancies are unplanned. And yeah. so how are we improving, how are we going to help those women have a healthy pregnancy by improving their preconception health when they don't even know they're about to get pregnant? And so there's two challenges there. And then the third thing is, well, if we know who's planning a pregnancy, you know, what are their motivations? How can we help them improve their behaviours? Can I ask a question? Yeah, absolutely. Because I was just thinking about that, and I don't know whether you know the answer to this, but could it be the fact that, you know, a proportion of people actually don't understand that preconception health is, like, an influence on conception and your child's health and, and things like that because I feel like, you know, we're at the other end of the spectrum, which is postpartum care, and we have found that, you know, the majority of the women that we engage, as soon as the baby is out, they stop taking their prenatal vitamins. Well, they're called prenatal vitamins, right? They stop taking their vitamins they're not as conscious around nutrition as they were in pregnancy. <clears throat> there just appears to be this huge focus on, you know, until you have something essentially growing inside of you, don't worry about the bookends. Does that, does that make yeah. sense? Do, do you find, it, like, have you found that? It is. Yeah, it is a challenge. And <laughs> so one of my PhD students, Pragya Candle, has been looking at motivations for preconception lifestyle behaviours and what the biggest thing that came out of the research was the knowledge. So, mm. for example, and folic acid is a really good example because there's been a lot Don't of get me started on folic acid. around folic acid <laughs> and, you know, if people know that they should be taking folic acid, they take it. But if they don't know, then they don't know. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Knowledge is power, people. Knowledge is power. But it's not the only contributor to behaviour. So, for example, if we're thinking of folic acid, if you know you have to take it, that's great, but if you can't afford it, then you can't afford it. 
if you have an awful memory and you can't remember to take it, then you can't remember, you know, you can't remember to take it. And so we can apply that same concept to any behaviour. So if you know, so, you know, once we get the word out that preconception health is really important and it can actually influence the health of your baby during the pregnancy, it can impact your pregnancy outcomes Mm -hmm. and it can impact outcomes further down the line once your baby is born because of fancy words, epigenetic change that occur at conception as well as those environmental factors that occur during pregnancy and also the way that you live your life once the baby comes out. And so if you want to apply those um, behaviour change concepts, if you're talking about, say, a dietary behaviour and you want to increase your vegetable intake, one, you have to know that it's important. Okay, we all know that it's important. So tick, knowledge is ticked. We have to be able to change it. So can we afford vegetables? You know, when lettuces are $10, I don't know that we can. Oh, but no. <laughs> um, can you, you know, can you afford it? Do the other people in your household like vegetables or are you literally making it for yourself, which means cooking two meals, you know, chucking out the food that the kids don't want? Do you, do you like vegetables? You know, do you know how to cook them? You know, there's just so many factors um, maybe you have great intentions and you, you you put them on your shopping list and you've made a meal plan and you're gonna you're gonna cook your vegetables, but then you've just spent nine hours at work and you've rushed and you've beat the 6:30 cutoff for childcare and you've picked your kids up and they're starving and you know the little one didn't have a very good nap and he really needs to go to bed so you don't have time to cook a, a proper meal you know so you chicken nuggets it is so there's so many factors that influence our behaviour. And our ability to even just enact things that we want to do, you know, meet our goals. And so, yeah, that's one of the areas of focus of my research. Oh, wow. And so is that ongoing? Do you have any findings at the moment as to kind of help women and their behavioural kind of changes? Yeah, so we're in the middle of data analysis, which is extremely fun. If you love data, then it's great. But it's <laughs> data analysis, so if you're not a researcher, Data analysis takes a long time. Yeah. You know, you've got to clean the data and, and anyway, it's it's in progress. But we do, it, I mean, from looking, you know, preliminary data, we it's the same for preconception as it is for, you know, pregnancy or other life phases. Knowledge is really important. You need to have the capability mm-hmm. to enact the behaviour um, and you need to have the opportunity. So you need to be able to you know, have the money to afford your vegetables or the gym membership if that's the way that you want to exercise or, or whatever it is. Have you found that, you know, that's just dietary kind of, have you found, like you just touched on exercise, are you looking into kind of other areas as well that are influencing so we that? Focus, we're focusing on, on diet and physical activity behaviours because my focus, my research focuses around um, optimising weight and it, so that's diet and physical activity, the two key weight-related behaviours. Mm-hmm. But I have to couch that in the, the context of weight stigma is really massive and mm-hmm. really important. And so we don't want to tell people to lose weight or you have to be um, a certain weight. You know, some researchers do, researchers do that and that's important, but I think that we want to just help people to be the healthiest version of themselves. Mm-hmm. So you can have a, a, you know, you can be in a larger body and be metabolically healthy and do all the right things. And that's, you know, five, 
gold star ticks, you know, that's perfect. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Yeah. You touched on, I guess, those downstream effects of preconception, health and well-being. Are you able to kind of elaborate a bit on that? Are there kind of particular findings or or the flip side of that is myths and misconceptions that you've kind of gained from talking to all of these women? You know, was, was there anything that popped up where someone said something like, oh, you know, so-and-so said this to me and is that true or I'd love to I'd love to kind of know what you've been hearing at that coalface yeah so my research doesn't focus on those long-term outcomes okay so my research focuses on I suppose the um, the knowledge the understanding of what's happening now so when I say now preconception um but there is lots of research in that area that looks at longer-term outcomes so your preconception lifestyle health and you know being at a healthy weight can impact things like your child's cognitive development Mm -hmm. obviously it can impact their lifestyle health as well and their birth weight their weight outcomes your uh, entering pregnancy at the healthiest that you can be has a big impact on the health of your pregnancy Mm -hmm. so for example if you enter pregnancy at at an unhealthy level, then you're at risk of higher weight gain during pregnancy and that can bring complications. So I'm not saying that it's for everybody. I'm saying it's a risk and you have so that I want people to understand the difference between risk and absolute. Mm, And that's sometimes where it becomes an issue in healthcare is that the healthcare professional understands that it's a risk and that someone's at higher risk and so we're going to do everything we can to minimise their risk. And, you know, that's their goal. But, so, you know, everyday Joe Blow doesn't necessarily understand that risk is not absolute. And mm. so, you know, we, we try, when we in research, we try and minimise risks. But just because you have risk X doesn't mean you're going to have outcome Y. That's a really good point. I'm just going to bring up, I saw a meme the other day. It's not a meme pardon my language, it's actually, a, it was a, um, a post by someone and people have probably seen it floating around. So it's um, by Bernadette from Core and Floor Restore and she is a midwife as well and she posted this and it just speaks to exactly what you said, Bryony. The post is there is a big difference between the risk of your baby dying doubles And this is the same thing. The stillbirth rate at 41 weeks is 0.06%. And the the stillbirth rate at 42 weeks is 0.1%. So it's doubled, right? Or hearing your baby's chance of survival at 41 weeks is 99.94%. And your baby's chance of survival at 42 weeks is 99.9%. So it's just about the language that people use. And I'm sure you would have experienced this as well in your science training, is that people fall down this catastrophic rabbit hole of how science and facts are portrayed to them. And, you know, we can, we can, put our data into a a figure, whether it be a bar chart or a line chart, you know, with statistical significance and things like that. And we can talk about high risk, absolute, low risk, 
And people who are not trained in science sometimes misinterpret what that actually is. And also, as you said, it comes down to the health professional being able to deliver that information and talk them through it correctly because you can't just throw bombs like, oh, your baby's, you know, risk of dying doubles. It's like, oh, my God, what does that mean? But when you break it down, it's like, oh, okay, right. That's the actual absolute values that I'm dealing with here. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. And one of the big culprits is the media. Oh, yes. Everyone loves a hook. (laughs) That's right. And the issue with the media is that it it can be so stigmatising in terms of talking about weight, you know, images of people with their heads cut off. They're not a person. They're always, you know, on the news, the person with no head eating or holding, you know, junk food or whatever. It doesn't show that that person probably just went for a walk or they're playing with their kids at the park and they're a real person who has a law degree or whatever it is, you know, the media. Yeah. Don't get me started. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm going to wrap up with a bit of a rapid fire. Are you ready? Okay. Yes, I'm ready. Okay. So these are the kind of questions that we ask most of our guests and they're probably more related to motherhood because this is what we, this is what we're all about. So, and we've touched on already, you know, the fact that you really felt like having a village was a game changer, but do you have any other top tips for birthing mums? Speak up. I love that. If it's niggling in your mind, say it. Um, I didn't do that with my first and I wasn't happy with the care for my obstetrician. But, you know, I advocated for myself the second and third time. It makes a difference. And for um, I'm kind of, you're probably more of an extrovert rather than an introvert. For people who are introverts, though, do you think have someone who can be there with you and, like, speak up for you? Absolutely. Have Have someone that will speak up for you. So yeah. if you're confident in to tell your friend or your husband or your mum, yeah. they can speak up. You know? I, love that. I love that. And you can say no. So many women, as I said, we kind of we started this conversation with people being told, you know, they have to do this, they have to do that because they've got like a higher BMI. For all those playing at home, you don't have to do anything. You can no, full stop, is a sentence. <laughs> because you'll tell your kids no a lot. Yes. Oh, my God, 100%. Good point, Brani. <laughs> Did you have a go-to resource, like a book or a workshop or something like that, and did it change as you kind of progressed from one bubba to two bubbers to three bubbers? Oh, that's a great, I don't know. I think the one place that I went to if I wasn't sure was the Raising Children Network website because I know that it's evidence-based and yeah. that's really important to me. And the maternal and child health line, if ever I'm not sure, I just ring. And that was the same in my pregnancy. If I wasn't sure, I would just ring the midwives. Yeah. So the maternal and child health line are always really good because they, they'll advise you, you know, yep, good idea, go to the doctor, good idea, go to the emergency. Then you don't feel so bad if you're using resources mm-hmm. um, for your children that, you know, maybe you don't want to you know, go to the hospital. Sure, for example. yeah. But, if, yeah. you know, if the maternal and child health person that gives you permission yes and you're more likely to, to, to do it isn't that like one of the kind of big things of motherhood being given permission I find that a lot particularly with our clients like we'll talk to them about you know 
how are we going to fill your cup today? And it's it's not about the shoulds and should nots, but it's also about giving them permission. Like, would you like to go for a walk? Like I can, I'm going to cook and Bub's asleep. Do you want to go for a walk or do you want to go for a sleep? And it's just kind of putting it out there for them. They're like, oh, yeah, actually. I'm like, yeah, I think you'll feel like a lot better after that. And they do. And it's about giving permission. So, yeah. And also finding friends who are able to do that for you as well, I think is kind of part of that village making. Absolutely. Yeah. And our last question that we always ask, what do you keep on your bedside table? Oh, a book. Oh, what are you reading? Um, I just finished a book. Oh, it was just a um, like a crime thriller. Yeah. I'm partial to a, a crime thriller. And I also love a bit of chick lit, you know, like a yeah. Leanne Moriarty or something. Yeah. 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 Have you read, it's my favourite book, Where the Crawdads Sing? No, I haven't read it. Oh, read it. It's just been made into a movie by the lovely Reese Witherspoon and her kind of production company. I'm I'm gonna go out on a limb and say it's my most favorite book that I've ever read. It's kind of it's got a bit of romance, it's crime thriller, there's laughter, there's tears, it's just exceptionally written I really really loved it so get that on your list I would say what read the book before you see the movie because the movie always lets you down I find (laughs) but thank you so much for coming onto the podcast Bryony and reaching out and as we say said offline you know we were the sponsors for the Australian Society of Medical Research last week and we went to the conference and the dinner and everything and one of the kind of big themes was researchers you need to get out there and be proud and loud about your research and you know get in contact with people so the public can hear all the amazing stuff that's going on and you are a prime example of that so thank you so much for coming on podcast my pleasure thank you for having me and I think I said offline as well researchers love talking about their research so it's not a chore it's actually (laughs) your fun and a pleasure Oh, it's so, so good. Well, you have a wonderful week and we will catch you soon. You too. Thank you so much. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services, including our postpartum in-home care and our Fill Your Freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.